Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh, and there's Chuck, and there's Jerry over there. And this is Stuff You Should Know. Straight ahead, both barrels blazing, sciency, strange, unusual, fascinating type stuff you should know. That's right. And uh, both of us fresh from vacation. Mm-hmm. I just got to say, we took the first family trip to Disney World, and it was great. The Oh, that was the first ever, huh? Wow, I'll bet that was something special. It was. I haven't been in 35 years. Wow. Myself, and the same with Emily. And uh, it's remarkable how much of the Magic Kingdom is exactly the same. Oh, sure. But uh, then I realized that Disney... Uh, Cultists? Diehards? <laughs> I think cultists is appropriate. <laughs> they didn't want anything different. So that that all made sense. Uh, but it was great. My daughter was, uh, you know, you never know till you get down there. But I had a feeling, because she's not a very fearful kid, that she mm-hmm. would ride stuff. And she rode everything that she was big enough to ride and wow. then cried on the things that she wasn't big enough to ride. Because she couldn't ride? Yeah. Like, Good. she did Space Mountain twice. She did Tower of Terror. She she wanted to do the Aerosmith ride at uh, Hollywood Studios. That's yeah. one that she was bummed out about. Um, which, uh, have you ridden that one? Oh, many times. <laughs> did you realize? You probably realize this. The little video they show at the beginning of yeah. Aerosmith in the studio. Uh-huh. That's Ken Marino as the uh, as the engineer. Oh, no. I thought you were going to talk about Ileana Douglas. I had no idea it was Ken Marino from that one show from the 80s. Oh, well, please. I mean, he was from the, he was a co-founder of the state, but he's he's one of my comedy heroes. Oh, that's not who I'm thinking of then. Yeah, Ken Marino's from the state and, you know, Wet Hot American Summer and okay. Party Down. And he had a he had literally no lines. I thought, oh, there's Ken Marino. He's going to do something funny. But he was, I guess, it was after the state – and before he had done a ton of other stuff, so he was just punching buttons. Uh, I thought it was very funny, but anyway, we I, had a well, great I mean, that time. That makes it even funnier that he didn't have a, a um, <laughs> like any kind of talk. Maybe I kept waiting for it. Uh, it was a lot of fun, though. Uh, if we went back, we would do it a little different. Uh, we went to Universal Studios and tried to park hop, but it's too much to do in one day. Mm-hmm. And uh, we we did all the Harry Potter stuff, but didn't get to ride some of the big rides we wanted to ride. Well, that's cool. I'm glad you guys had a good time. It was wonderful and refreshing. and Yeah. Uh, boy, I think we both needed a, a little respite. We definitely did. Me and Yumi went to Hawaii for our 10th anniversary, our 10th Woo-hoo! wedding anniversary. Yeah, it was the first time we've traveled in about th- two and a half, three years, something like that. First that trip, a, huh? Yes. It, it was something else, but it was great. See, I went travel crazy after I got COVID for a while, so I, I'd gotten some trips in. You're like, I only have a few days to spread this far and wide. I better get out there. No, after I got it. <laughs> oh, gotcha, gotcha. After gotcha. I recovered. You know what I mean. I know. I'm with you. No, I, I stayed inside and scared. But uh, this is so it was it was something like I was like, I don't know how this is going to go, but it went really well. But we're back. We're here to do a job. And this is, you're right, this is very old school stuff you should know mm-hmm. kind of topic. I'm shocked that we hadn't covered it yet. Uh. I I think the reason that you're shocked is because we actually have no we did we did uh, amputations I know we talked about it in there because we talked about the mirror box before plenty yeah yeah and then possibly talked about it in limb reattachment I'm not sure but definitely in amputations we did 
All right. Well, this finishes up the suite in full then. I agree. So what's Phantom Pain? <laughs> well, so um, shout out to Olivia, first of all, for helping us out with this. I realized that we didn't we didn't acknowledge that she helped us with the Chowchilla bus kidnapping article. So sorry for that one, too. So I want to let that pass. But she hey, Olivia's good, all over our scene now, and she's she really doing great. Is. Um, so this, she, she does a good job, like, basically getting across, like, what Phantom Pain is and that we actually don't really know what it is. But you can describe it as anyone who's had an amputation about— 80% of those people um, suffer some sort of pain sensation, and it's a whole range of pain, as we'll see. The problem is it's in that limb that's not there anymore. It's not in the residual limb, what people colloquially call the stump. Yes, you can have pain there, too. That's called re- residual limb pain. This is phantom limb pain where, let's say you had your foot cut off, you feel like there uh, is a nail being driven into the bottom of your foot. Problem is your foot's not there anymore, so you can't pull the nail out. And hence, we get to the meat of what the big problem is with phantom pain. That's right. Uh, it can, it's, you know, usually think of hands and feet and arms and legs and stuff like that. But uh, it can be after a mastectomy. It can be uh, removal of testicles. Uh, I know that's not exactly a limb. It depends on how big it is. Oh, boy. I did set it up with that. Inflection of my voice, <laughs> right? Said <laughs> Josh, you, "Will you please do the honors?" The base. <laughs> of course. Uh, there's also uh, sort of a side affliction called uh, phantom limb sensation, mm-hmm. sensation, mm-hmm. sensation, which is it's not exactly pain, but it's like you know, I feel like my foot is moving that's not there, or my hand feels hot, mm-hmm. even though I no longer have that hand, or maybe. Uh, pressure or something like that. But it's not, or it may feel like swollen or like when you're asleep, I feel like my arm is stuck behind my back and it's causing me great discomfort, even though you don't have that arm, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Yeah. And so for a long time, people have said like, well, clearly it's, these people are nuts. It's in their head. I saw it was as recent as 1987 that they finally said, no, that's not the case. And we'll talk about some of the, the historical view of it. But the upshot of it is now we understand that people who experience phantom limb pain are, in fact, experiencing pain in the same way that you or I would experience pain in that same limb. Like, it's just as real to them as it is to us, and it means that the brain's gone haywire. And there's all sorts of ways it can manifest itself. There's shooting shooting pain, stabbing pain. It could be cramping pain. Pins and needles, which is bad mm. enough, but pain from pins and needles, which would be awful. An yeah. itch you can't possibly scratch. Oh, boy. That sounds about as bad as it can get. A crushing pain, throbbing. Basically, any variety of pain that you could have experienced in that um, in that limb before it was amputated, you're capable of experiencing it after it was amputated to you. Yeah, and Livia makes a good point here. And as you'll see in the history part, they're— have long been philosophers and and people like to think it and scientists even that are just fascinated with this curious syndrome and it's you know it, it makes sense that people would be fascinated with it like that mm-hmm. but it is a real problem um, it is it can cause people to not sleep it can cause people to not have the job that they want it can lead to suicidal thoughts like it is a real affliction and not something that should be just treated as a as an interesting curiosity. Right. But it also is an interesting curiosity. It's something sure. that we need to understand to help people with, but 
it, it's fascinating, and the reason why philosophers are so so you know nuts for it is because it proves that like our subjective experience of reality is not necessarily fully in line with reality. It shows that we're capable of experiencing the unreal. Wow, that was dramatic. I thought so too. <laughs> Uh, so let's, you want to dive into the history a little bit? Yes. And let's talk first, Chuck, I think, at the beginning about Ambroise Paré. Oh, yeah. He was a French uh, surgeon in the mid-16th century. And this is one of those kind of rare cases where someone from hundreds of years ago described something and had a handle on something in in a pretty solid way. Like, looking back, he really was pretty close and a lot of the things that he thought about phantom limb pain, and he was the first dude to describe it, which is pretty remarkable. Yeah, I mean, we're talking the middle of the 16th century, like you said. That's that's crazy. Um, that's a time when people didn't really think that that the people working in science were scientists. Like, science kind of came later, according to some people. And it's like, um, if we had just kind of built on Perret's understanding of it, who knows how much further along we would be in, in you know, treating and dealing with that kind of stuff. But um, it's like you said, he had a really good handle on it. He's, he was the first to differentiate. Remember how I said there's like residuals, residual limb pain, and then mm-hmm. there's phantom limb pain? He was the first one to say those are two separate things. It's not the same thing. Uh, he said that there's different factors that can um, set it off, like the weather, a change in the weather. Um, and then that there's different things that could treat it, like sometimes massage around the residual limb helps too. What else? Uh, he also made the distinction, you know, we described the phantom limb uh, sensations. Mm-hmm. He described the difference there between the pain and the sensation. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's a big one. He also said, so he said two things. He said that... Um, Either that his guess for what was causing it was that either there was some problem with the nerves in the residual limb. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he said that he thought they were retreating possibly or withdrawing, which makes sense in a, a weird way. Um, or he thought that it was that it originated in the brain, not through some sort of psychosis, but through some sort of you know foul yeah. up in the brain, like a glitch in the brain. And still today, as we'll see when we're talking about this, our understanding of phantom limb pain basically boils down to those two those yeah. two general concepts. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And um, we're not ex- – well, we'll get to that. I want to save that. Mm-hmm. I don't want to spoil it. Okay. Uh, I mentioned philosophers being sort of um, delighted by this idea. Descartes was one of them uh, in the kind of early to mid-1600s. He talked a lot about phantom limbs. He, he was one of the people that – was really blown away by what he called non-resemblance, which is what you were talking about, your subjective experience not aligning with reality. Mm -hmm. And he also thinks uh, or thought it had to do with severed nerves, so he was sort of on the right track as well. Mm -hmm. And then the Scottish guy, uh, William Porterfield, in 1759, he was a physician that lost a foot, and he had an actual physician's first-person autobiographical take on it all Mm -hmm. and talked about his toes, heel, and ankle, spelled with a C, which is fantastic, (laughs) Um, like experiencing pain and itching several years after. I don't think we said it can start up to like in as short as like a week afterward, Mm -hmm. and it can go on. You know, sometimes it comes and goes. Sometimes it's persistent. Sometimes it goes away entirely. Sometimes it lasts forever. So – 
Um, it can really be all over the, all over the map, but his uh, description was at, at least a few years afterward. Right. So um, that was 1759, and that was almost exactly 200 years after Paré first identified phantom limb uh, sensation or phantom limb pain. Um, and it just kind of got lost from there. And it wasn't until the American Civil War when mm. a surgeon named Silas Weir Mitchell, who I know we've talked about, his name seems very familiar. Yeah, I agree. Um, who took part in the the, the removal of 30,000 limbs, not himself personally, but he was um, like among the battlefield surgeons who took that total number during the American Civil War, thanks to advances in certain kinds of um, bullets and projectiles that could really do some so much damage that when they hit, like, a bone in a leg or an arm, like, you just were going to lose that arm or leg to save your life. Um, he he had, like, all this firsthand experience with these people who had just lost a limb and were complaining about pain in the limb. So this, this idea of phantom limb pain kind of came back to the fore at a time when surgeons were starting to talk to each other more and science was starting to be practiced in a more methodical way so that the discovery of one person could be understood and learned and built on by other people a lot more easily than it was in the 16th century. Right, but he took a kind of weird approach initially <laughs> Yeah, uh, in that he wrote a fictional account, uh, basically a, a fictional short story called The Case of George Dedlow. Mm-hmm. And he talked about a Civil War veteran who experienced phantom pain in legs and arms that uh, he had lost in the war. And it ultimately led to a seance where he's communicating with these limbs Mm -hmm. and then walks around the room on these invisible limbs. And a lot of people thought this was real and started sending donations in and wanted to visit with this person. Mm -hmm. And six years afterward, he was like, maybe I should write uh, something real, a nonfiction piece. Mm -hmm. And he went on to do that, I think, to greater effect. Yeah, because he finally, after six years, he stopped face palming. Right. Like, okay. <laughs> That's how long it took. It sounds like people today, doesn't it? Can't you see people today sending in donations to the guy who lost his legs but were was yeah. able to walk around on invisible residual limbs in a seance? Yeah, Facebook told them so. <laughs> <laughs> so um so Silas Weird Mitchell finally creates what what you could kind of point to as like the first um modern scientific paper on phantom limb pain. And uh, he estimated as high as 86 out of 90 of his um, amputee patients uh, experienced phantom limb pain. Not just phantom limb sensation, but phantom limb pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that that is a really high number. It's higher than average. But like I said before, I mean, in the neighborhood of 80, I think I've seen as high as 85% of people who have an amputated limb will experience pain to some degree in that, in that, that phantom limb. Right, and I think most people experience sensation, right? Uh, I believe that's correct, yes. Uh, my understanding is more of the phantom pain stuff, though. Is phantom sensation more prevalent? Yeah, I mean, for sure. Okay, all right. Well, that makes sense, too, and that's just merciful. That's right. Uh, and for a lot of years, there was, you know, up until like the mid-20th century, there were a lot of psychological, um, or they were attributing this at least to psychological causes. Earlier on, it was, you know, doctors would say, oh, you know, people who experience this have, uh, one quote was, an unsatisfactory personality. (laughs) Uh, Or they said they may be obsessive people, obsessed with things being wrong. Mm -hmm. They may be anxious people. They may be overly dramatic. Can you believe that? I know. 
but all the way up until 1954, people were arguing, doctors were arguing uh, at the Mayo Clinic that uh, phantom limb pain sufferers, if, if it was persistent, reflected a pre-existing difficulty in adapting to problems uh, and maybe influenced by just knowing that it exists. Like, right. oh, yeah, I've read about this. I'm, I'm feeling that pain, too. So if you, if you suffer Very from dismissive. Fan, phantom limb pain, you are neurotic, yeah. easily suggestible. Possibly you're, you consider yourself a failure now that you've lost a limb and you're worried about disappointing your father or mother who might be, yeah. like, overly concerned with sports triumphs or beauty or something like that. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I dug up— a, a reference that said it was 1987 when they finally did a, a meta-analysis of all of the literature and said, everyone, these people are not crazy. Like, for years, they used to compare. It wasn't even a comparison. It was like, um, it was a tangential um, syndrome where if you experience phantom pain, it was tantamount to having psychosis. Like, yeah. that's how they were treated. And so, for years and years, people just knew, like, you didn't complain about your phantom pain or else they were going to give you electroconvulsive therapy. Right. Maybe even a lobotomy. It doesn't—I didn't turn that up, but I guarantee someone got a lobotomy for phantom limb pain sometime in the 1930s or 40s. <laughs> that would not surprise me. I would put a lot of money on that. They would lobotomize uh, domestic— housewives for mm-hmm. not wanting to do dishes. Exactly. So, so you know yeah. <laughs> somebody with phantom limb pain got that treatment. Yeah. Uh, should we take a break? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. All right. That was chock full of information. Yeah. So we can only go down from here. <laughs> no. Let's keep <laughs> chocking it up, Chuck. All right. We'll be right back to chock it. Chucking it. Let's chuck it some more. Oh, hold its mouth open. I'm going to stuff it full. <laughs> um, this is really interesting. Livia uh, dug up a couple of first-person descriptions of phantom uh, pain syndrome. Is it a syndrome? Uh mm, I don't know. I don't know why I'm calling it that, because of alien hand syndrome, probably. Yeah, the thing is, I don't think it is a syndrome, because a syndrome is usually a cluster of seemingly unrelated symptoms. So, probably not. Oh, look at you. Smarty pants. I can't remember what that was from. I think in our albinism episode, I learned what oh, the really? difference between a syndrome and a non-syndrome. Yeah. Oh, okay. So it's recent. Don't don't be too impressed. <laughs> uh, she dug up a couple of Norwegian academics, and one pa- and this is just to let you know what what some of these people go through. Uh, one of the patient described a phantom arm being stuck straight forward, just sticking straight out from the shoulder, mm-hmm. and basically every time he walked through a door would go through sideways mm-hmm. and you know, this is, you hear something like this and it's, this is a, it's not like shooting, stabbing pain and, and pins and needles, but it's something that you have to explain to everybody. It's something that you're living with that, uh, that people would see as abnormal. Sure. So it causes psychological impacts, you know? Yeah. I mean, if you saw somebody with only one arm, 
just turn and go gingerly kind of sideways through a doorway for no reason, yes, it would it would be a little odd, you know. But the idea of your arm never being down, I mean, that kind of goes back to what we were saying, the difference between being fascinated with it and the difference between having to live with it, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, just think about what it feels like to have your arm up, like, just yeah. for a minute or two. Imagine always feeling that. And then the guy that you um, mentioned who was also in that Norwegian paper, you mentioned before where um, – there was a patient who couldn't sleep on his back because he felt like his arm was twisted behind him at all yeah. times. And, yeah, that sucks to not be able to sleep on your back. That's like the money sleep right there. But imagine feeling like your arm is twisted behind your back every waking moment and that you can't do anything about it. That would drive you nuts. It's as simple as that. Yeah, so those are uh, like on the sort of lighter psychological side. On the other end of the spectrum – Uh, Another man who uh, I think lost both legs um, was woken up periodically thinking that the nail of one toe was growing into the next toe. Mm -hmm. Uh, And another amputee said they felt like the skin on their arm was ripped off, salt was being poured on it, and it was thrust into a fire. Right. And then other people report too, Chuck, this seems like something that would be easy to overlook that, you know, having, you know, consistent pain in this phantom limb remind them that they have a phantom limb, that they have like an an amputation, and that just makes the whole thing that much more, an already distressing event is is consistently distressing over and over again, because it's just a reminder of it, you know? Right, especially if you're trying to rehabilitate and move on with your, with Mm -hmm. the new normal, you know? Yeah, exactly. So, um, we kind of reached finally like where we're at with our understanding of uh, phantom limb pain. And that's basically where we were in the 16th century, if everyone had listened to Ambrose Perre. And that is that um, despite a lot, a lot of people getting amputations every year, in the U.S. alone, I think there's something like 185,000 amputations every year. The vast majority of them due to complications from vascular disease, including diabetes. Um, having a whole bunch of troops come back from Iraq and Afghanistan uh, with amputations, needing treatment and rehabilitation. And 80% of these people suffering phantom limb pain, we still don't know what causes phantom limb pain, what the basis of it is. And that's despite thinking we did for a little while there, right? Like in the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, and we talked about it in I think our amputation episode, we thought we had a handle on it, and that's since been challenged and possibly debunked. Yeah, and, you know, like we said with Pere, uh, Michael Pere, is that his name? <laughs> You're thinking of Michael Buble. <laughs> no, I was thinking of Eddie and the Cruisers. Maybe that's who I was thinking you were talking about when you mentioned Ken Marino. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. They should remake that with Ken Marino. What a funny movie that would be. Who is the guy I'm thinking of? I want to <laughs> say it's like a – he was like a kind of like a, a dark knight kind of figure who would like help people in maybe the 50s. <sighs> Arthur Fonzarelli? No. <laughs> <laughs> No, I'll, I'll try to remember. I'm gonna pour, I'm gonna portion off like seven percent of my brain just to be working on this this problem while the other ninety three percent is focused on this episode. Okay. You know what? It's funny that I said Arthur Fonzarelli because our uh, friend of the show, Paul F. Tompkins, and uh, sort of 
colleague pal in real life for us. Mm-hmm. He mentions Arthur Fonzarelli more than any other human I've ever known in my life. Oh yeah, and it, yeah. In his in his show Freedom, and then conversationally on his other show uh, Stay of Homekins with his wife Janie. Mm-hmm. He, he just he it's a great comedic effect. He brings up Fonzie a lot. It's pretty great. Well, yeah, I mean, if you if you want to get an easy laugh, just bring out Fonzie. Yeah, he, he times it out well. It's really well done. Like you just did it yourself. I feel like I channeled uh, Paul F. Tompkins there. So I I can tell you what the show is now if you want to know. It has nothing yeah, yeah. to do with the 50s Dark Knight thing. I'm still <laughs> okay. not sure what that show is. It's what a is show, it? I promise. It's called Growing Pains. The guy I'm thinking of is uh, Ken Wall in the show oh, Wise Guy. Sure. He kind of looks like Ken Marino, too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you put them next to each other, you'd be like, don't be ridiculous. But if you saw yeah, one okay. at a party and then went to another party down the street and uh-huh. saw the other, you'd be like, gosh, you guys look a lot alike. I remember Ken Wall. I don't know what happened to that guy. Uh, Maybe I everyone can... figured out he was a bad actor. Was he a bad actor? I mean, oh, uh, come on. Wise Guy has a 7.8 out of 10 on IMDb, right. and that is really <laughs> high these days. Well, that says it all. Yeah. Uh, so I think where I was headed before I got sidetracked was, uh, like you said, with Parade, they are still sort of looking at two schools of thought. And it, who, knew, it could be a, who knows, it could be a combination of both. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, central nervous system stuff and then, um, you know, brain mapping and literal nerve uh, issues. Like, you know, it could have, you know, the first thing you're going to do is put you into the wonder machine and see what lights up when you feel that type of pain. And they have found that it does show activity in parts of the brain connected to the nerves of that missing limb. So that's a good place to start. Uh, it could be thickening of these severed nerve endings, mm-hmm. um, like after the operation, mm-hmm. uh, making things a little more sensitive. Uh, but there's still a lot of debate on this, you know? Yeah, and that last one is called the neuroma theory. And that is that was a leading um, uh, explanation for it. And it still could be right. But the, when they when they amputate your limb, um, they're also amputating a lot of other stuff than just like your leg. There's a lot of stuff that still remains that is no longer intact. And that includes mm-hmm. nerve endings. Those nerve endings have lost their attachment points, their endpoints. But they're still capable of transmitting electricity through your your uh, peripheral and into your central nervous system. And so they actually seek connections and will sometimes connect with each other and cause all sorts of haywire stuff. And they are like, well, maybe that's what phantom limb pain comes from. And it's entirely possible it is. Well, here's something that I had no idea. I knew a little bit about this, but when I read this, I was pretty uh, dumbstruck. Uh, mm-hmm. If you had like... Uh, a bad knee, and then you had to have an amputation from like the thigh down, mm-hmm. you're more likely to have phantom limb pain because you had that bad knee before. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a risk factor. I don't know if it's still considered that, but it was for a long time that if you had pain in your, your limb, and we're talking like in the hours leading up to your amputation even. Oh, really? Yeah. That that, okay. that your brain remembers that. And that's So evidence- it could just be really recent? Yes, um, that's kind of evident. Like, your brain never got a chance to work out that it was no right. longer in pain. It's just continuing on. Um, and there's they've done studies of um, people who where they give a local anesthetic to, like, just to your leg, and they really numb it, and then they uh, move it, and then they 
bring you out of anesthesia, and they say, what direction is your leg moving in? And Mm. almost consistently across the board, people report the way that it was before it was moved when it was under anesthesia. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. So, like, you remember this kind of stuff, and that actually kind of leads to another theory of um, what causes phantom limb pain. It's called proprioception theory. Yeah, lay it on me. So, so proprioception is just your awareness of where your limbs and extremities are in space. I've right. seen it ex- explained as like how you can close your eyes and touch your nose. That's all proprioception. And this, this whole idea behind proprioception having to do with phantom limb pain is that we do this because we're able to like touch our nose with our eyes closed, not just because we know where our our limbs are in space because our brain is constantly keeping track of it and has basically a general map of our body at any given point. So if we lose a part of that body, that Mm -hmm. brain map doesn't necessarily catch up with it. So the brain map is still expecting signals and is basically creating signals um, based on its expectations. And that's the proprioception theory of, of phantom limb pain. It's interesting because it's almost as if some of these theories point to the brain being less able, I guess, less neuroplastic than they thought, right? Yes. Yeah. And Well, that's the thing. So, so the neuroplasticity, that's the leading, most dominant, accepted explanation for phantom limb pain, which is that you're, the part of your brain that was dedicated to sensation and movement of your arm that has now been amputated, it's being restructured, rewired, reconnected. And so you're getting all sorts of weird crosstalk and and it's creating the sensation of pain in a limb that's not there anymore. That makes sense. And it's been accepted since, I think, the 90s. Um, But it's been challenged recently by findings that, that show your brain actually doesn't seem to be restructuring itself at all. Yeah, there's a, a famous TED Talk, a, a researcher from uh, Cal San Diego named V.S. Uh, Ramachandran, who he argues about neuroplasticity, and he's the one that uh, uses the mirror box, which is what you mentioned at the beginning, mm-hmm. which is the idea, and this is, I think, in the 90s, where there's a box, uh, and if you're a unilateral amputee, you would put your, uh, let's say you've lost your right arm, you would put your left arm into one side of the box, and uh, the residual limb and the other side of the box, you would see a reflection as if you still had both those arms. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that your brain sees this, and so it can it can map this out. But I think they've done um, studies and meta-analyses that have found that if it does work, it's very short-term. Yeah. It, it's not like the brain completely remaps long-term. So it's more like a salve than a cure. That's what the studies have shown, but that's kind of surprising because it was it was touted early on as like a like this is going to cure it, and it makes sense from a neuroplastic way. Like you're you're allowing your brain. Like, do you remember I was just talking about how uh, it's possible that your your brain hasn't caught up to the idea that that limb's mm-hmm. not there any longer, um, and so you you think your limb's in a different position. Or the, the last position it was in, or it's in the pain that you you thought it was in. If you could trick your brain with the mirror box to see that thing and make your hand wiggle or make your brain think your hand is wiggling, mm-hmm. it can be like, oh, okay, good. I'm not actually experiencing any pain. I can stop that signal, and you can go on with your merry life. It makes sense, 
And a lot of people accepted it for a long time. But like you said, the the follow-up studies and, and analyses have shown like doesn't really have that long-term effect like you would think. And then on top of that, some of those MRI studies that you mentioned a few minutes ago have yeah. actually shown like, no, actually that region that was in control of your left arm that's now been amputated, that region of the brain is still fully capable of of causing your arm to function and whatever. There hasn't been like some great reconnection where other, like your tongue sensation has taken over that part of your brain to become a super tasting tongue. That's just not panned out in the, in the reviews and the, in follow-up studies. So yeah. we're back to basically square one. We don't know what causes phantom limb pain. All right. I think we should take another break and uh, we'll talk some about treatment when we come back, including what I think we will, if I can speak for you, uh, I think you'll agree some of the most fascinating uh, headway they're making, which is working with prosthetic limbs to be more realistic is also having an effect on phantom limb pain. All right, so we talked well, a little hold bit. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. What happened? I just want to give an update here. Okay. You can probably understand why I confused Ken Wall as the um, lead <laughs> of a of like a kind of a mid-50s, like Dark Knight kind of helping people yeah, out yeah. thing. Because uh-huh. Ken Wall was the lead in the 1979 greaser flick, The Wanderers. Okay, I knew he was in a, in a greaser movie. That's, I, knew that. I think that's what I was confusing. Yeah, his hair looks good in a ducktail. I think I had confused The Wanderers with the um, the 80s TV show Crime Story as well. I think I conflated all those. I don't know what that is. Uh, it was a cool one. It was like, I think, a mob, Vegas mob show. It was like a cop drama. What was the, was uh, Wanderers like an Outsiders ripoff? No, it was a little more true. Outsiders was weird and avant-garde. Or, um, I'm sorry, did you say Outsiders or um, what am I thinking of? What's Man, the weird, the wrong. weird one? Warriors. That's what I'm thinking. Oh no, I'm I'm thinking of Pony Boy. I think the Outsiders came after the Wanderers and was probably something of an homage to that. No, it was a book from way back. Okay, fine. <laughs> We're Man, never going to get to the root all... of all of this. I'm losing. <laughs> My stuff. It's all Ken Wall's fault. I, I think it's all Ken Marino's fault. <laughs> um, all right. So what we were talking about before, and we'll talk a little bit about some of the treatments, but for my money, some of the most fascinating work going on right now is research that is trying to help people use prosthetic limbs uh, more effectively. Uh, one, one. There's a couple of different things they're doing. Well, there's a lot of different things, but a couple of them are targeted muscle uh, reinnervation and targeted sensory reinnervation, which is either using uh, leftover motor nerves or leftover sensory nerves mm-hmm. from that amputated limb, connecting those to muscles that lost their function. And all of this is in service of you know, the, all the work they've done with prosthetic limbs to make them smarter and yeah. like, like, hey, you can, you grab a coffee cup in a different way that you would grab a pillow and you may be able to know when something's hot or cold, like the advances that they're making is unbelievable. And some of these advances are 
helping with basically telling the brain, no, you've got a real limb there again. And so you don't have that phantom limb pain. Yeah, I found this um, this one mention of how apparently there's people who have prosthetics are, are faced with this terrible choice where um, the prosthetic feels way heavier than their limb ever did, even though the mm-hmm. prosthetic probably weighs less than their limb did. For some reason, because it's foreign, it's not really part of their body, to their brain, it's very taxing to wear it or carry it around or use it. And it can be so taxing that it can it can increase their risk of cardiovascular disease, of heart attack, of all sorts of stuff like that, just by, like, overexerting themselves. And then... The other thing they could do is just not use the prosthetic at all and lead an increasingly yeah. unhealthy, sedentary lifestyle. So these new prosthetics are, are kind of getting around that by recreating, as far as the brain's concerned, mm-hmm. a limb very closely. And the way that you do that is, like you said— um, give it senses that it used to have, like give it sensory information from this limb. And you, you what they're doing is information from the, from say like a prosthetic foot, just the fact that it's receiving pressure from the ground, it will send an electrical signal up through its cables to a terminal where it's connected to the actual like, like um, nerves and then muscle tissue also mm-hmm. in your leg. And it will send that on up to your peripheral nervous system and into your central nervous system. And your brain experiences, this is so awesome, the sense that it's of pressure from the bottom of your foot when you put that, that prosthetic foot on the ground. That's the level yeah. that we're at at this point, which is amazing. Yeah, I mean, I remember many years ago, it may have been – uh, one of those episodes you mentioned where we talked about, and this this was probably at least ten years ago. So I imagine the the strides since since then are even more that you know they've gotten to the point where you can think you know grab coffee cup and that prosthetic hand will grab coffee cup right. And the more lifelike that feedback is, the more it seems like at least that it's going to help alleviate phantom limb pain. Exactly. Because that seems to be one of the bases that they're figuring out about phantom limb pain is that these nerves, um, whether it's muscle tissue, nerves connected, formerly connected to muscle tissue, or axons, or some some type of nerve impulse uh, carrying material, a nerve, I guess, if you're not a total weirdo and say things normally, um, <laughs> they, they still want to carry these impulses. So they're still accepting like impulses, but they're just not cut out for the task any yeah. longer. And what they're figuring out is like, hey, surgeons, if you leave some muscle tissue attached, we'll come mm-hmm. back and attach the, the, the sensory cables from a prosthetic to that muscle tissue. And we're going to be back in business. And the brain's going to think like, hey, I've got this. I got my foot back. I got my leg back. I got my arm back. To, to the brain, it's all the same. It's still getting some sort of sensory information. It might be kind of primitive compared to what you had before. But from what I'm seeing, it's, it's not necessarily. And we're getting more and more more advanced by the by the year. Well, yeah, and it's that muscle tissue that allows the body to sense things like f- applied force mm-hmm. or a sensation of stretching, you know, something. Mm-hmm. And not only are they saying to surgeons like maybe we should rethink the way we're doing amputations, but they're saying we can go back in and and attach muscle to the end of those nerves mm-hmm. from amputations that happened years ago. And so if you give these nerves the something to do productive, 
Mm-hmm. They're going to stop looking for something to do, basically, that's actually very unproductive and, like, causing phantom pain. And so that's, like you said, that they think that that is, or not they think, like, they're they're seeing quite clearly that that helps alleviate and maybe cures phantom pain, just giving these nerves a productive job yet again. Because they just want to work so bad. Yeah. But they got cut in half. Yeah. It's remarkable. Um, uh, on the less remarkable side, treatment-wise, and this is, I think, just— residual, you know, I mean, that's a very forward way, way uh, forward thinking way to, to do things, I think, with phantom limb pain, which is this prosthetic stuff that they're working on. The old school treatments are literally like giving people pain drugs yeah, and giving people opioids, uh, you know, muscle relaxers, beta blockers, stuff like that. And I'm not poo-pooing medication if it helps people out, but it it does seem like a bit of an antiquated thing to do is just to throw pain med somebody's way. Right. Um, so there are other like non-pharmaceutical techniques too. One of them is kind of like a low-fi version of what you would get with a really advanced prosthetic. Um, it's called TENS. It's been around since at least the 80s. Um, my mom was a, a, a hospital administrator later in her career, and I remember <laughs> we had pads of paper laying around our house that had, like, pictures of TENS units on them. Really? Yeah. I guess the <laughs> TENS unit supplier gave us some free pads of paper. Oh, that's so funny. Um, so, it's transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation, and it's basically giving those nerves something to talk about without them having to make it up themselves. But it's just stimulating them with electricity, and they think that that what happens is you're kind of overwhelming that pain signal with a more robust electrical signal that just turns off that pain signal. And it actually helps really, really well. TENS helps a lot of people um, with back pain. You, you Have you seen those like little um, electrode things that you can put on your lower back and there's like a little, yeah. looks like a beeper attached to it? That's a TENS unit. And all it's doing is sending electrical impulses through your skin to your nerves and basically saying, shut up, pain signals. Here's, here's, something, here's something bigger. <laughs> it's the Bonnie Rate treatment. Yeah. Let's give them something to talk about. Or uh, what was that ad? Move over something. Now there's something leaner. <laughs> Move over bacon? I think so. But what was the product? I think it was sizzling, wasn't it? No. Uh, that's a disappointment. Maybe. <laughs> what was sizzling? It was not good. I'll tell you that. I don't and, even know what that was. Remember Steakums? The Dude, frozen. Don't knock Steakums. <laughs> you, you like Steakums? <laughs> well, it's the, it's the, you know. It's the uh, budget version of uh, of a Philly cheesesteak. Yes, and that's how I always ate it, too. But even still, it's like, this is terrible. It, t- it looked like a shoe did. insert. <laughs> yeah, it did. It did. Uh, I, I liked Steakums for many years. Having said that, that was, you know, 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, you know, if you make a homemade cheesesteak, slice that uh, ribeye, fold it up and roll it up and slice it really thin. Is mm-hmm. that right? That's what you use is some good ribeye? Yeah. Nice. Flatten it out, pound it out really thin. Man, you have come so far. <laughs> you have arrived. Because I'm pounding ribeye? No, because you left Steakums in the rear oh. view. Wow, we. <laughs> you went from Steakums to ribeye. Uh, what else? I think there's a few more treatments. There's biofeedback, of course. Uh, there are very simple things like just propping up the residual limb, uh, repositioning it, you know, uh, being distracted. Uh, they say lifestyle changes. Like, you know, yoga, meditation, mm-hmm. uh, music, stuff like that yeah. can can help. Um, probably better than throwing opioids at the problem. Yeah. 
And again, I mean, just doing stuff like moving the limb, um, massaging it, um, just just giving it some sort of other, like, very real stimulation tends to help. But, I mean, if you feel like you can't sleep because your arm's twisted behind your back and it's like that constantly, uh, especially if it starts hurting like you get a Charlie horse like that, mm-hmm. nobody's going to blame you if you ask for opioids, you know? Like, that's... That's that's the reason why this is not just interesting. That we it's an imperative that we we understand it and learn to, to cure it fully. Agreed. So that's it for phantom limb pain and phantom limb sensation. Everybody, uh, if you thought that was pretty neat, there's a lot of interesting stuff to read about that uh, phenomenon. Not syndrome, though. We don't think. Uh, and since I said not syndrome, that means it's time for listener mail. Uh, I'm going to call this uh, just sort of an enlightening email from a from a listener. Okay. Uh, hey, guys, longtime listener. Uh, my first email to you was in 2013 when you were working for Discovery Channel. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the episode on albinism, you mentioned that it's the barest minimum of parenting to explain to children the scientific reasons behind why we have some variety in the expressions of what it means to be human. And yes, that is important. It's also important to teach children that society creates isms about these expressions, which serve to privilege or marginalize certain groups of people. Uh, My research is around race and racism, so I'll use that as an example. Uh, Yes, it is important to teach children what science says about uh, how variety manifests in the human body. Likewise, children need to learn that racism exists and that racism is a social construct that is not biological. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just the former without the latter fails to prepare children to react appropriately when they are faced with racism. And the same goes for anyism. Uh, as I wrote almost a decade ago, I still use your podcast with my grad students. Uh, and that is from Judd. Uh, Judson Laughter. He, him, his. Uh, from UT in Knoxville. Go Vols. Oh, yeah, go Vols. Right up the road. My, uh, I guess, niece-in-law? Maybe? Okay. <laughs> I think niece in law in law potentially just got into um, University of Tennessee and she it's nice. like her her dream like she wants to go study the body farm Chuck doesn't that just do your yeah, heart yeah I love that yeah uh, so congratulations and thanks uh, Professor Laughter awesome name that mm-hmm. is a really important thing to point out and thank you for sharing that with everybody if you want to be like Professor Laughter and share your awesome name and or awesome point you can email us it's stuff podcast at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.